All right, let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, I would encourage you to follow along in the Blue Pew Bible. You can find 1 Timothy 6 on 993, as we are now in the final chapter of 1 Timothy. And we're headed down the home stretch of this series with just a few weeks left. This morning, we're going to be picking it up at verse 3 of chapter 6. Um, and, and many commentators hold uh, the conviction that this verse 3 is the beginning of Timothy's conclusion. The beginning of the ending of the letter. And it is because of the phrase, if your Bibles are open, you can look at the back half of verse 2 where Timothy write, or Paul writes, teach and urge these things. And that phrase if you've been with us since we began this series in January, has come up throughout 1 Timothy uh, several times. It, it's a transitional phrase that Paul uses to go from one section of the letter to the next. But it also hits at the heart of why Paul sent Timothy to this church in Ephesus in the first place. So a reminder that Paul began this church about 8 to 10 years prior uh, to writing this letter. Paul himself departed from this church five years earlier. And he gave a departing speech to the elders there. We had that speech recorded in Acts chapter 20. And in that speech, he, among other things, warned them to be on guard. Because he said, fierce wolves, which is a phrase meaning false teachers, are going to come. And they're going to come in, and they're going to come in among you elders, among you leaders. And they're going to lead and seek to lead the church astray from the gospel. And 1 Timothy, then, is tragic evidence that that is indeed what happened. That teachers who hold to what Paul calls a different doctrine, which is to say an unsound doctrine, have grown in influence and power in the church in the five years since he left. And so now he sent Timothy to go to Ephesus and get the church back on track. All right, so let's put this in our context. That'd be like Paul coming to Ridgewood in 2015. And he starts a new church in Ridgewood. And over three years there, that church grows here in Ridgewood. It disrupts the culture in the best ways possible. People take notice that this new little fledgling church is growing like wildfire. And in the course of those three years, amongst growing the church and teaching the church, Paul has now raised up elders to lead after he leaves. 2018, Paul comes to Grace Church congregation and says, guys, I got to go to Boston to plant another church. We know they need the gospel in Boston, all right, to reach the unreached people group of Red Sox fans, all right? We, like, they need a church there. I got to go. So I'm leaving this church to the elders, and it's a warning to the church to be on guard. Otherwise, fierce wolves will come in amongst in this church in Ridgewood and lead this church astray. And that's indeed what happened. So the question comes to us now at the beginning of this conclusion. How do you revitalize an unhealthy church? In many ways, it's easier to start a new church than it is to revitalize an unhealthy church. How do you realign a church that has been derailed? That's where I think this phrase comes up over and over again in the letter. To begin with, you teach and you urge. You counteract false teaching with sound teaching. You teach and you teach and you teach, but then you also urge Right, which is to say you appeal to the affections, you get from the head to the heart, and then in all things you teach and you urge and you apply it to their lives and the life of this church. You teach and you urge, you follow the trajectory from head, my head's up here, from head to heart to hands. 
That's how you revitalize a church, from head to heart to hands. And so now let's read the beginning of the ending of the letter, starting in 1 Timothy 6, chapter, uh, 1 Timothy 6, sorry, verse 3, and we're going to read to verse 10. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Verse 6, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. All right, simple outline this morning. We're going to answer two questions. Number one, what is the problem with false teaching? And then number two, how do we correct it? Number one, what's the problem? Number two, how do we correct it? Starting with, what is the problem with false teaching? So in this conclusion, we will see some repeating of points that we have already covered throughout the letter. We're going to see warning against tolerating false teachers and the dangers that come with them. And then there will be an encouragement to Timothy to stay the course. But then, in one way, Paul is going to go against the grain of typical conclusions. Typically, in a conclusion, you don't introduce something new. But Paul is going to introduce something new, explicitly. He's going to weave into these warnings and these encouragements the trap of money clearly indicating that the church in the city of Ephesus was having a struggle with the trap of money. The Bible as a whole has a whole lot to say about money and wealth, both in the positive and in the negative. On one hand, there is a strong affirmation of wealth in the Bible, where wealthy people can deploy that wealth to positively impact the kingdom and other people. And so you see example after example in the Old Testament and even into the New Testament of wealthy people in the Bible who are blessed in order to be a blessing. They are blessed financially in order to be a blessing to others and further God's kingdom. So in the Bible, wealth is often celebrated for the mission of God. And at the same time, on the other hand, there is a strong warning throughout the Bible that money is a trap. It's a trap. And as we'll see in our text, many fall into this snare. And the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Uh, but first, did you notice that verses 3 through 5 is a single, long, run-on sentence that Paul is famous for in his letters? A run-on sentence. It's the kind of sentence that if you're English or journalism major in the church, you cringe at when you read it, right? That it, 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 It's a terrible sentence from an English perspective, and you're like, wait a minute, but the Bible's inspired by God. How do I think about this? And you feel guilty. Uh, but Paul is known for, in these letters, these kind of long, run-on sentences. But I think this one is not just because that happens to be Paul's style of writing, but he's showing us something. He's showing us the connection between false teaching compromised character, and corrupted greed. 
He wants to show how these things are all connected together. Why there's such a problem with false teaching. So, to put it plainly, what is the problem? It leads to spiritual bankruptcy in the church. Why is Paul so open arms about false teaching in this letter? Because it leads to spiritual bankruptcy in the church. So let's see how he gets there. He returns at the end of this letter what he said at the beginning of the letter. So if your Bibles are open, look down at verse 3 again. He writes, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Now, compare that, turn your Bible back a couple pages to chapter 1. Chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, this is what he writes right after his initial greeting to Timothy. Look how it compares. Chapter 1, verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Chapter 1, at the beginning, Paul lays out the faulty content of the false teaching. Whereas now at the end, in chapter 6, Paul lays out the faulty character of the false teachers. Are you with me? Faulty content of the false teaching at the beginning, now near the end. The faulty character of these false teachers. This is what Timothy is to teach and urge. Belief will always shape your behavior. Belief shapes behavior, and belief that is not in line with sound doctrine will be exposed by self-centered character, self-centered behavior. So if you were to ask a question, how do you spot a false teacher? It's a question that probably every believer should know. How can you spot a false teacher? Well, 1 Timothy says, the content of their teaching and the conduct of their character. Content of their teaching, conduct of their character. First, their teaching does not center the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's the problem with this teaching. The person and work of Jesus Christ is the foundation of the gospel, of true doctrine, which is encompassed in the creed that we say and affirm together each week. That Jesus is the one and only Son of God. That Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the Virgin Mary. That Jesus suffered and died on the cross. He was buried in a tomb, and he was raised again from the dead to give eternal life to everyone who believes in him. The content of the foundational gospel teaching. You know, we began saying that Apostles' Creed, if you're new to grace, we, we, we used to not do that. We actually started that with this series, affirming, standing together after we sing, saying the Apostles' Creed. Um, I don't know how long we'll continue doing it. I don't know if we'll ever stop or if we'll stop after this series. Honestly, that decision has not been made yet. But here's why we began it. We began it out of the conviction that partially came out of this series that we want to remind each other each week that while at Grace Church, we care about a lot of things. We care about, we have a lot of convictions and beliefs about uh, doctrine, about the Christian life. But these things we affirm, this is what we care about most. Never mistake that this is what we care about most because this is the doctrine that we think the Bible cares about most. These are first-tier, we call them, first-tier foundational truths that we will die for at Grace Church. And belief shapes behavior. So if and when the person and work of Jesus Christ is decentered in the teaching, 
then the person and work of Jesus Christ will be decentered in our lives. Here's why. It is our natural bent to lean towards self-justification. What self-justification is, is that we live to save ourselves. And our success and our value and our worth in life is based upon what we do to accomplish it. It is all of our natural bent. And so when false teaching from the church reinforces these, this means of self-justification, and Jesus and his work is decentered, if we're not careful, religion can actually reinforce that natural bent instead of counteract it. So what do I mean by that? Well, if our response to the teaching that I hear in church is that I need to live a certain way to be a Christian, then our pursuit to be good becomes a way of controlling God, and our salvation is still more about what we do rather than what Christ has done. It just has religious language covering it. And here's the danger. You can profess to be a Christian. Yeah, I believe in Jesus in kind of a vague way. But functionally, in our hearts, Jesus is decentered because really it's about us and our ability to follow him. And when that natural bent towards self-justification is combined with any kind of worldly success, which is what they were apparently experiencing in Ephesus, it blinds us to the fact that we can't actually save ourselves. A natural bent towards self-justification mixed in with success is a dangerous combination. Because we think we can make ourselves worthy. And what Paul is saying is that these false teachers, they rose to prominence not only in status as leaders in the church. They're not only feeling the success of being in authority and being the ones with the mic, so to speak, and teaching and having people kind of prop you up and put you on, on a pedestal, but they're also experiencing success in financial gain. That's what they realized. And you see that at the end of verse 5. This authority and this appearance of godliness is a means of gain. Paul is talking about money there. Financial gain. Their status has brought them financial gain. And it shows the church that if you're godly like these teachers, you too will experience financial gain. Well, that's the belief. How does that shape out in behavior? This is where Paul, the track he's bringing us on. What happens when self-justification meets worldly success? Look at verse 4. Puffed up with conceit. Prideful. Um... You think you know everything, when in fact, when it comes to what's most important, you are bankrupt and you know nothing, and even more dangerously, you don't even realize it. And now what happens is you're on edge, because when you have to determine your self-worth, you have to protect it at all costs. So if you are making yourself worthy, you've got to ensure nothing else can threaten your ability to see yourself as worthy. Paul describes it as being now you're more prone to quarrels to envy, to dissension, to slander, to evil suspicions, this kind of paranoia that someone is trying to get you, somebody's out to get you, and there's a constant friction, not only in your life, but now in the culture of this church. Because if you're in a place of leadership, of authority, of influence, like these elders are, now all under your authority get wrapped in it as well. And that's true for any leadership, by the way. Parents, uh, maybe your leadership in your company, or in your church, Ultimately, leaders set culture wherever you are. Wherever you're a leader, wherever you have authority, you have a role in setting culture wherever you are. 
But notice too, and this is what Paul is weaving in, make it very clear for us at his conclusion, this connection that Paul makes between self-worth and wealth and the desire for wealth. And our natural bent in this world is to link the two together. That worth is equated with wealth. And an unhealthy love for wealth is equated with success. When we look around and we think about people in our area, we think about just people that we know. If somebody's wealthy, we think they're successful and they're worthy. And if we happen to experience wealth, there can be a mentality that shapes, that starts that we made it. We, we made it. The, the world has given us a value that deems me a successful person. And when we, can, when we gain success in one area of life, then we try to apply that to all different areas of life. And it blinds us. It has a blinding effect. It blinds us to our real selves. It insulates us from any criticisms or being told that we need something. And it breeds a certain arrogance that renders us unteachable. Especially to the teaching of the gospel. And the mentality that says, I'm a superior person. And by the way, nobody says this, but this is what's churning within. I'm a superior person because this world has deemed me successful. And so I can't really learn from you if you're not wealthy like me. It's the natural functioning of our hearts when we get lured in by this trap of money. We see how closely tied it can be to how you value yourself as a person. And it can blind you to what you really need. This connection is a warning to the church both then and now that we need to heed, that you can say you believe in Jesus in general. Again, a general sense. You profess to be a Christian. These false teachers believed in Jesus. They, believe, they professed to be Christians. They professed to be Christian teachers. But Jesus was no longer centered in their teaching or in their lives. And so one bit of evidence that you can see just for us to know in our own lives and as we help and disciple others is that when you ask somebody, hey, are you a Christian? And when they provide evidence for that, every sentence should not start with I. Are you a Christian? Yeah, I go to church. Uh, I am generous with my money. Uh, I grew up in a Christian family. I try to be good in my life. I try to help others. Those are all good things. But when that becomes the ground of how we see ourselves and value ourselves based upon our own self-justification, we can expose we don't actually get it. When Jesus becomes a mean for personal gain and not the reason for our justification, it exposes we don't get it. And a self-centered life often uses personal wealth to determine personal worth, especially in an area like ours. But, but remember here, like, let's look closely. Being wealthy, never the problem in the Bible. It's never a problem to be wealthy. But it's an unhealthy love for wealth that is the problem. Verses 9 and 10. It's those who desire to be rich that fall into this trap. Those whose love for money supplants their love for God because money, again, is so wrapped up in self-worth. So here's what that's saying. You can be poor and still have an unhealthy love for wealth. This is not a, a, a tirade against wealthy people. This is a warning against an unhealthy love for wealth. And to this all, Paul does not mix words. It plunges them into ruin and destruction. They are spiritually bankrupt without even knowing it. 
You see, they're not healthy, but they think they are. The most dangerous tumors in the body are the ones that are growing without the person having any inkling that they are sick. They're blinded to it. I feel great. I look great. I have no impact, no fall off in my life. And this is the problem with false teaching that leads to compromised character and corruptive greed. It's spiritual bankruptcy that leads to death, and they don't even see it. So that's the problem, and it's a big one. So let's go to number two. How do we correct it? What is the solution? If our Bibles are open, look down at verse 6. Here's the key phrase in the entire passage. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Uh, Kent Hughes uh, wrote in his commentary on 1 Timothy, he sums this up concisely and clearly. He says in the Christian life, godliness is not a means to the gain. Godliness is the gain. My goodness. Godliness is not a means to gain. It is the gain. So we see what Paul is doing here. He's teaching, but he's urging. Real wealth, friends. Spiritual wealth is gained through contentment in Christ. You know, contentment is this really fascinating concept in our day where it's universally desired and yet terribly elusive. Contentment, universally desired, but terribly elusive. So that was also true in the first century. Um, amongst the Stoics in Greek philosophy, which were a uh, significant group and had significant hold on the upper class in the first century Roman Empire, um, contentment with that was the highest aim in life. It was the highest virtue to be content and not reliant on anything else outside of yourself. So when Paul is writing this, he knows full well what he's saying. When he's writing about contentment, he knows he's writing about a concept that is highly desired, not only in the church, but in the whole city. Everybody wants to be content. And you know, that has not changed 2,000 years later. We don't hear the word Stoics or Greek philosophy. But today, let me ask you this. What is held up as the highest virtue and aim in our day? To love yourself. To accept yourself. To be your truest self. And if you would just love yourself and accept yourself and find your self-worth in inside and block everything else out, you can do whatever feels right to you. And the aim is striving towards contentment. That is the highest virtue contained in yourself. And so we see how relevant this is, and we need to understand how Paul connects, again, this trap of wealth speaking into our desire for contentment as well. One major reason why we desire wealth and why we could lean towards an unhealthy desire for wealth is because we see wealth as a means of security, of staying secure, where you can go through your life and say, no matter what my circumstances are, I can um, log into my account, take a look at my accounts, see the numbers there, my balances and my investments, and no matter what's happening in my life, I can look to this and here's a means of security. Okay, I will be okay. I will make it through this circumstance. And it's a means of security. It's a blanket. One that we look to stabilize us in times of struggle. 
But if we lose wealth, or if we don't have it yet, then we tend to just go up and down with our circumstances. It's made all the worse by the fact that I don't have this secure blanket. It's another example of the blinding reality of wealth. The only problem is, whether it's wealth or something else that you find in this world to be your baseline security blanket, the problem is, it won't work. And what's happened is we're driven by fear to keep the wealth or whatever it is we have there or else. And so you're driven by fear to keep what you have. Or you're driven by fear to get what you don't have. And you're always searching and you're never finding. It reminds me of what my dad would say uh, when I would hear him preach. Uh, I remember him say this multiple times that if you were to ask somebody the question, hey, how much money is enough money for you? How much money is enough money for you? He said, regardless of what tax bracket you found yourself in, the answer always seems to be just a little bit more. I just need a little bit more. And I'll be content. And I think you could say this shines a light into the core problem of the human soul. Searching for contentment in all the wrong places. We think we know what we want, but then even when we get what we thought we wanted, our hearts just move on to want something else. We're always searching and never finding. Uh, there's a poem I remember coming across years ago. It always struck me because I remember at the time resonating with it. And if I'm honest, I still resonate it with more than I would like to admit. Maybe you will too. Poem will be on the screen. It was spring, but it was summer I wanted. The warm days and the great outdoors. It was summer, but it was fall I wanted. The colorful leaves and the cool, dry air. It was fall, but it was winter I wanted. The beautiful snow and the joy of the holiday season. It was winter, but it was spring I wanted. The warmth and the blossoming of nature. I was a child, and it was adulthood I wanted. The freedom and the respect. I was 20, but it was 30 I wanted. To be mature and sophisticated. I was middle-aged, but it was 20 I wanted. The youth and the free spirit. I was retired, but it was middle-aged I wanted. The presence of mind without limitations. My life was over, and I never got what I wanted. By the way, that poem was written for a school assignment by a 14-year-old, who was a no-namer, didn't go on to write any other poetry. <laughs> except that one. Contentment. Universally desired, but terribly elusive. So teach and urge these things, Timothy. Belief shapes behavior. And godliness with contentment is great gain. True contentment can only be found in that which can never be taken from you. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 7, Paul supports this with the statement, For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. That reminds me of some things. First, of my own mother-in-law, who I think is one of the healthiest perspectives towards money, wise stewardship, clear generosity. When talking about money, she always reminds us, can't take it with you. You can't take it with you. Which that, in turn, reminds me of a story about John Rockefeller. 
You know that name. He had an estimated net worth of $1.4 billion in 1937. In today's standards, where that money would be today, he was and still is considered the richest individual in American business and economic history. At John Rockefeller's funeral, someone came up to his closest aide and asked a question that we always wonder but rarely ask. So how much money did he leave behind? The aide looked back in the person's eyes and said soberly, all of it. All of it. Because you can't take it with you. But there's someone else that that line might remind you of. It might very well be the person Paul was thinking of when he wrote it. And that is Job. The man who faced the worst kind of circumstances. In a single day, Job lost all his children and all of his wealth. In one day. And in deep lament, he arose, he tore his robe, he fell on the ground, and what? Worshipped. And this is what he said. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Here's what the Bible says. True contentment will not insulate you from suffering in this world. It doesn't guarantee what will be given to you. It doesn't guarantee what will not be taken from you. But it does affirm over and over and over again on the good days, on the bad days, and every normal day in between that the best thing will never be taken from us. Salvation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when we treasure that above all else, Our worth is secure, not in ourselves, but in Christ. Uh, John Stott says this most memorably. He says the key to contentment is not to be self-sufficient, but Christ-sufficient. And the way to Christ-sufficiency is to preach the gospel of grace to yourself. As Tim Keller puts it, to drill it into your heart. Church, how do you drill this into your heart? It's one thing to understand this from a ethereal standpoint. How do you drill it into your heart? How do you go from the head to the heart? It is by seeing and affirming that there is someone who chose to suffer for you. That on the cross, Jesus became naked. And Jesus experienced the punishment of your sins so that you don't have to. He became naked in your sin so you could be clothed in his righteousness And now your worth is not found in your ability to cover your own nakedness, but to believe he covered it for you. And when that is drilled in your heart, that Jesus valued you enough to give his life for you, then you in turn will value him over all things in return. And then you can live every single day in this reality of what you've been freed from and what you've been freed to. When we are content in Christ, you are freed from the trappings of this world. You are freed from having to justify and protect your self-worth with your own ability. You are freed from relying on worldly things to provide eternal value. But that is not all, church. In Christ, you are free to. You are free to live your life entirely unto him. 
free to steward whatever wealth you've been given to further impact his kingdom. You are freed to live in the power of the Spirit all the days of your life. Church, you are free to rest in your adoption and justification into the family of God. And when you live this way, you're untouchable. When you live this way, what's the worst thing that could happen to you? You could lose all your money? So what? You could even die? Who cares? In Christ, we can say with Paul, O death, where is thy sting? O hell, where is your victory? And so as we close, let me ask you a simple question. Are you truly content this morning? Truly content. I don't just want to know what you should say in your head. But what's true in your heart? Do you know who will hold you fast in all circumstances? Do you know where your value is most secure? Grace Church, I want us to live free and to be unleashed for the kingdom of God. And I want to be able to stand with you and sing in confidence with you what we're about to sing that he'll not let my soul be lost, and his promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your word. We're thankful how in all things it spotlights the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. I thank you for the invitation that you have given us to find ourselves in him, hidden in him, truly content in him. And Father, I pray for anybody right now listening or here with us this morning who have been convicted this morning knowing that their life is defined by self-justification, that perhaps they even had a vague belief in Jesus, but they know he has been descendered in their lives, Father. I pray that your spirit would give them the assurance now to receive the invitation that you are giving them to come who are all who are heavy laden and find rest in you. To repent of our sin and put our faith in your son Jesus Christ who covered that, who covered our nakedness, who clothed us in your righteousness, Lord. Allow them to experience the reality of being freed from the trappings of this world and freed into the grace and power of the life that you are given. Father, we thank you, we love you, and we trust that you truly will hold us fast. And it's in your name we pray, amen. Let's stand together and respond in song.